it takes so much work and and self-actualization and really like sitting with every really vulnerable part of you and and having this this moment where you're just like I don't have to do these things and then I don't have to care about what happens when I don't do these things and that takes a lot and it's terrifying because you don't know what's going to be on the other end of that Welcome to Perennials, a podcast about growing up, getting wise, and trying to live a good life. I'm Victoria Russell. My guest today is Cindy Goncalves, and she's someone that I think is really fully on a path of living into her truest self. I think it can be really hard to feel like we belong to ourselves and our bodies belong to us, and we can live authentically. We can live in a way that feels really true to who we are. And I think that's even harder for people who know that their truest selves might not be accepted by the people closest to them or by society at large. And, you know, Cindy is a masculine presenting queer woman. So this is something that she has had to grapple with in her life. And yet she has so much strength and courage and kindness and As a school counselor now, she shows the students that she works with every day that she is proud of who she is, and she's living an authentic life, and she's living a really good life. In our conversation today, Cindy and I talk about her own journey of learning about her sexuality and her identity when she was growing up, the reaction of her parents and and the, the slow evolution of their acceptance of her. And we also talk about how limited and limiting our ideas about sex and sexuality can be in our dominant culture and how if we can just air things out a little bit and not be so afraid of these parts of ourselves that we put in the closet, we can find a much more expansive sense of sex and sexuality and creativity and connection and what it means to be alive. I'm so grateful to Cindy for this conversation. It just gave me so much to think about, and I hope that you enjoy it. Cindy, welcome to the podcast. Hello. <laughs> so you are now a, a school counselor, and yes. you're a poet in your other life. That's how I know you. By night. (laughs) And you also spent some time working for an organization that provides positive sex education in Newark schools. Yeah. So it was uh, Newark schools and then some organizations around Newark. What was your experience of sexual education and understanding like your own sexuality, identity, um, health as a kid, teenager, young adult? Um, like, you know, the, the, the scene in Mean Girls where it's like, if you have sex, you'll die. Yeah. Like, I feel like that's, <laughs> yeah. that just overarches my experience period with any kind mm-hmm. of like sexual health, anything. Um, I feel like a lot of it was, was very cishet in a way where I think I, I didn't know how to identify it that way. And then like, obviously with my exposure to different things, now I can look back and be like, wow, that wasn't inclusive at all. I think the only mention of anything queer sex related was, you know, the fact that gay people existed. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like, you know, 
how to have, you know, safe sex mm. amongst, you know, similar body people or like, it, there was nothing like that. It was just like penis and vagina. If you have penetrative sex, you have a baby, mm-hmm. wear a condom. Mm-hmm. It was like the most basic of things that, it, it, and, and, and I think maybe that's where I approach everything now. Like I, as a senior hearing that, because that was really the only introduction that we had to any kind of sex ed was the last year of high school. when we all know that, like, we all know these basics at this point. And even if there was some kind of misinformation at some point, like we knew what they were telling us. So we all kind of tuned out. It wasn't something that we weren't being offered new information or information that we actually cared about. It was like, okay, cool. Yes. Condoms. Great. Got it. Doesn't matter if we don't need condoms. Here's <laughs> right. condom. Great. Can you offer condoms? No, you can't even give us condoms. So we have to go buy condoms. Oh, okay. Great. Thank you. Um, but there was like never any discussion about, you know, gay teens or lesbian teens or queer teens or trans teens wasn't even mm-hmm. part of like that wasn't even existed. That, that, that wasn't thought of at that time. I don't think anyone really even know, like thinking about my my health teachers, there was no one who would have even thought to touch on that subject. Mm. Um and it was like it was one marking period out of the whole year that you got like what they called sex ed. It wasn't anything that was comprehensive. It wasn't anything that was inclusive. And I don't know. I think my my first real introduction was maybe in college. I don't know where there was this like shift of me just knowing stuff. I want to say that I don't, I don't want to be that person. But like, yes, I did grow up with a good amount of the internets in my life. So there was a lot of stuff that, you know, you sort of just kind of come across in, in, in life, in Googles and Ask Jeeves at the time, like mm-hmm. when we're <laughs> young and we're curious as to what things mean. Um, so there were a lot of things. And, and it was it was funny because I feel like now looking back, sexuality and sexual health and, and, and anything sex related was always very interesting to me not in this like pervy way but in like this I don't know maybe it was because it was so taboo mm. um that I just like I, I drew very attracted to it and and like you know I was the kid who was watching birth videos my <laughs> senior year because it was fascinating to me and people would tell me I was freaking strange but like it really is amazing to me and like those kinds of things I think I had to just figure out on my own. Mm. So when it came to, I think my sexuality as like a queer teen, there wasn't any of that. Like I kind of stumbled upon my sexuality because as tropey as it gets, like I fell in love with my straight best friend at the time. And like, there wasn't this language for it. It was just like, okay, there's something weird happening here. I don't really know what it is, but I like spending time with this person. Um, And then, like, you know, you start reading certain things and then you, you know, stumble across the wonderful world of Tumblr. And then it's like every gate is open for you. Um, And then I kind of just allowed myself to have that in college. Like I joined RU Pride um, and they did, you know, sexual health workshops there. We had people come in and do sexual health workshops for the organization. Um, I don't know. I I think a lot of it was sort of self-taught. And it sucks. It yeah. sucked a lot because I know myself personally and a lot of the people that I still keep in contact with, like we all just didn't get that. We watched like the pregnancy pact and it was like, don't get pregnant. <laughs> and in my head, I'm like, I won't. Don't you worry. And you you went to a public school or? 
Catholic yeah, school? Yeah, I, I did go to a public school. Okay. Yeah, I, yeah. And did your parents talk to you about sex or sexuality at all? Um, I mean, my dad never, no. My mom, it wasn't necessarily a conversation as much as it was like, if we were watching a movie or something, she'd be like, you know what's happening? And I'd be like 14 and really awkward and just like kind of <laughs> nod my head yes and then find a reason to leave the room because I couldn't handle sitting yeah. in the room with my mom watching yeah. a sex scene. But my parents were never very restrictive of it either. Mm. Um, my dad, I mean, my dad's not really a talker, period. But my mom, like even conversations as far as like periods was very open in the household. Um Obviously, there was no conversation of like, hey, mom, guess what's happening Friday night with this person? But um, it, it wasn't necessarily shunned. Mm. Yeah. And thinking about what you said about how limited the sexual health education was in your high school. And, and I'm thinking about when I was in high school and like we had a pretty, compre- pretty comprehensive um, education for like you said, like heterosexual sex. Yeah. Um, like yeah. we, there was definitely a lot of education about anatomy and different methods of like protection and like, and different health issues that could come up. But it's, and when I think about it, it's kind of interesting because I mean, it breaks my heart for, for queer teens, LGBTQ teens who are, who are like, can't see themselves at all in, you know, mm-hmm. in what they're, or aren't getting any helpful information. Um, But I'm also thinking like, it's just limiting in general, because like you said, like you were fascinated by all these things. Cause I think it's just, it's part of being, it's part of being human. And I'm thinking about, um, there's this therapist named Esther Perel. Do you know her? Mm -hmm. I don't. She wrote a book called Mating in Captivity, and she has she has a podcast called Where Should We Begin, where you can listen. Hmm. Basically, you're listening in on uh, couples therapy sessions. Um, oh, and that's pretty cool. She was just featured recently on the show on Being, and um, she talks about erotic intelligence as mm-hmm. like this form of intelligence that we don't talk about. Um, mm-hmm. And she talks about how like eroticism is about so much more than like sexual parts or sexual acts it's like your life force it's your creativity it's your connection to someone and Hmm. like if she's talking to a couple and they're saying we don't have enough sex she's like you could have sex once a month that's fine but like how are you looking at each other how do you talk to each other Hmm. and I'm thinking about like we're so outcome oriented when it comes to sex in this culture. I feel like it's very limiting, even for those kids sitting in the classroom who are planning on having sex with someone of the opposite sex. Um, yeah. To think that it's just that that's all that sex is. And like, it yeah. has to look a certain way. And it's like this one act, this one outcome. Um, like that and in and of itself is so limiting. It the same way. Right. I don't mean to interrupt you, but like, no, go ahead. I would definitely agree like that. Everybody wants sex the same exact way. Everybody wants to be penetrated some way. Everybody wants to be, you know, wants to have oral sex in some kind of way, which isn't the case. There are a lot of people who have very different kinds of sex. Some want just penetration. Some want, don't want penetration at all. Um, and I think when, when, when we're teens and we hear that, like, you, you think, 
right? It plays into this idea that like there is this moment in sex where you know, you, you do all of this work, you reach a climax and that's it. That's yeah. we're done here. We had the sex. Right. And it's like, that's, it's, it's so much more. And I think when I was with Masakane, we tried to enforce that, you know, sex has, you know, many, um, functions, but one of it is really, it's, it's a just, it's for pleasure. You can enjoy sex just to enjoy it. And it doesn't have to be, you know, what you watch in, in seven minute porn clips. Like it, it can be, it can be long. It can be, you know, two minutes. It can be a half hour. It can be something very sensual. It can be something very quick. It's, um, you know, like w- you can enjoy it the way you want to enjoy it and you can talk about it and you can, you can ask for certain things and you can say, no, I don't like that. And yes, I do like that. And maybe we can try it this way. Like it is about this open kind of communication and that's not even considered in any kind of like, no. I mean, I don't know what the curriculums are right now. Um, I know the state is pushing to, I, I think, effective fall of 2020, they're going to roll out um, LGBTQ inclusive curriculums throughout the state, which is awesome. Um, I don't know how much of that would tap into, you know, phys ed and, and sexual health in health classes. Um, but I mean, it's a good start. I just... I'm curious to see where it will end mm. up and I'm curious to see what they'll actually tackle. You know, like if just the idea that some bodies don't look the same, some bodies require different kinds of pleasure and, and some bodies are looking for a different kind, like, are they going to have those conversations? I think that's just me being hopeful. Yeah. We like go through the school system or like porn gives people certain ideas about how women's bodies look. Absolutely. A lot of the time. Yeah. Um, and we have these ideas about like what is normal and that there's like a particular thing that is normal. Absolutely. And I think there's also this like unestablished hierarchy of, especially when it comes to porn of like, what is real Mm. sex? Mm -hmm. What is like real hardcore good sex? Mm. And it's like, you know, if you're a teenager and that's the only kind of exposure you have, you're going to hold yourself to those standards. Yeah. Do you find in your work with students now um, do kids talk to you about sex or about their sexuality? Um, more about their sexuality. And let me tell you, all the students that have come out to me as either as trans or as, as gay or, or pansexual or, or, or genderqueer, um, they're, they're resilient. Like this mm. generation has, has a new sense of, you know, I'm trying to be the best me that I can be regardless of what everyone thinks. Um, and it's, it's really beautiful. It's almost like, I I feel like an old person where I'm like, it's almost terrifying. Um, because I, there's, there's, there's so much still to tackle. And I know what that sense of like, I can do anything in the world, um, which is great. And they should feel like that. But I, I think, unfortunately, not everything is behind them the way I think we'd all want them to be, Mm. which sucks. But I, I have had, I think one of the youngest students I had was a sixth grader um, who, no, seventh grader, who, you know, he told me that he was trans and he, he, he sat with me. And, and, I, and part of what I do, and this is, it's not every counselor, and I think I need to take a step back from my experience and know that not all counselors 
know to do these things. But like, if a student comes out to me, it, everything is, is, is individual. Everything is about how does this student want to proceed? Um, obviously within limits of, of policy and, and regulation, but like this student was very specific about, you know, in the classroom, I would prefer to be called this, but in the hallway where, you know, other people might hear, I'd be per- preferred, I prefer you call me by my dead name. Right. So it, you kind of have to work with them as they're still trying to figure it out. Right. These kids are, mm-hmm. they're, they're kids, they're teenagers are trying to figure their own selves out. Um, and to me, it doesn't make you can walk in one day and say you want to be called John and then walk in the next day and say, you know what, maybe I want to be called Sally or Xavier or whatever. I, OK, fine. That doesn't impact the way I see you. That doesn't impact your academic success. Um, but that's that's not where. I'd say a good amount of educators are, mm-hmm. which makes it very difficult to work with them. What do you most want those kids to know? when they come to you or to feel when they come to you? Hmm. I mean, comfortable seems like the obvious answer, but I just, I, I try my best to just reassure them that their, their experiences are valid and their existence is valid and, and their story does matter. And they're, they're not alone in any of this. Um, it can be extremely defeating, especially at that age when, most people are against you and you may have one or two that are on your side. Um, but just, you know, it, it's not going to be easy, but you will, you will have people in your corner, maybe not immediately. Um, and maybe not the people that you would love to be there just yet. Maybe not at all, maybe never, but, um, there will be people on your side mm. and it starts with me. Hey, <laughs> and I think that that was part of my, like, I very much, at least where I am in my life, I'm okay with being that visibility for, for my students. Mm. Um, it's important for me as a masculine queer woman to be out, to have pictures of me and my partner and my kids and, and my life and not be afraid to say, oh, you know, me and my partner went to this restaurant yesterday, the same way a teacher would say me and my husband or me mm-hmm. and my wife. Um, because that is part of the experience. Part of that normalizing and part of that acceptance is acknowledging that people in these positions, in positions of, you know, of, of assistance, of authority, of, of success, can be this person, can be, you know, outwardly queer and, and, and vocal about their lives in a way that I think a lot of people don't have access to, especially young kids. They don't really see that. Um, and they're so easy too. like the younger ones, obviously like the little ones, especially when I was, was subbing would, would, you know, they'd always hit me with the, are you a boy or a girl? (laughs) Like I had a few kids do the like, Oh, like I'd hear it in the hallway and they'd be like, no, but she has boobs. Like, I'm pretty sure that's a girl. And I'm like, yes, I'm a girl. Yes. You have to sit down. No, we're not having this conversation. (laughs) Um, but like, that's, you know, it can stay there. Once they, once they get it, that's it. It's just like, oh, okay, cool. You're, you're a girl. Cool. Can, can we keep it? Can I, can I get crayons or <laughs> no? Okay, cool. Um, I so re- I take, I think I take it upon myself to just like be that visibility for my students. That's on, but that's me. I know there's a, right. there are a lot of people who do not want to be that person and that's completely okay and just as valid. Right. Um, I just feel like 
my, at least right now, maybe I'll get tired of it one day, but at least right now, I feel like my goal is to just be the person that I needed when I was in school. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember you have a poem about cutting your hair or at least where you mentioned cutting your hair. Like, yeah. And I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit, like your hair. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like yeah, it's so symbolic for, yes. for women in particular, right? Yeah. So my hair is actually like on aside from it being symbolic for women in general, like my hair was super symbolic at like a family level. My grandmother on my father's side, um, she had like long, beautiful hair that she would braid every morning and put it in a bun. And when I was little, like my dad didn't let me cut my hair because it reminded him of his mother. Oh, wow. Right. So like there was a lot that was there even before I understood any of it. So what I remember when I was like five or six, my hair was like past my ass at this point. And my mom was like, no, it's getting exhausting. Like, <laughs> you know, this is becoming too much. So she cut my hair without telling my dad. And my dad got so upset and he didn't talk to her for like two days. Um, so there was this like deep connection to my hair. Now, fast forward I'll say five, I was about 21 when I cut it. So 16 years or whatever that is. Um, so when my parents originally found out that I was queer, I was 18. I had just got out of, uh, just graduated high school, like going off to college. Um, and a lot of it was sort of, we it happened. They were thrown into it by someone who wasn't so great and decided to out me. Um, so they were thrown into it by somebody else. It wasn't necessarily something that I told them. So they felt this like mm. immediate deception. Mm. Um, and then it was, it was like, it was, it was, I don't want to say hell cause that kind of makes it sound really terrible, but it, it was pretty crappy for about two weeks. Um, and then I went to Portugal that summer and then it was sort of like no one talked about it again. We all kind of decided this happened it sort of ended at this is just a phase you're going to you're going to get out of this and we're going to keep it moving so when i had like my first real girlfriend who i was like you know seeking something out this was maybe 2 or 3 years later i was like i'm i'm so tired like little by little i was cutting my hair more and more and at this point my dad was just like whatever you're 19 18 years old I can't really do much about it but it was still relatively long and then I just got to a point where I was like I'm done like I, I don't like the way I love my hair but I, I don't like the way I feel with it right now I don't feel like it's like it's me so I actually went to my god sister's house who's a hair who she's a hairdresser and I just I was like you need to cut my hair and she was like are you sure because she knew the hang up with with my dad and with my hair and um and I was like yeah let's do it so she cut it like super short it was kind of like long on one side short shorter on the other and I was like I slept over her house that night because she lives in Pennsylvania I was like I'm sleeping here I'm gonna take the day I, w I got home and like my family was like what mm. like just kind of blank stares and I was like hey what's up <laughs> not really knowing what to do and being very awkward. Um, and like, it was just, my dad didn't really, he just kind of looked at me and was like, kind of shook his head. He's not a man of many words. So he just kind of looked at me, shook his head and just walked away. Um, it wasn't as I think 
traumatizing, but I think it was, it was one of those things where they had this moment of, oh shit, this is, this is really happening. Mm. Not that, you know, cutting your hair indicates anything, but I think my parents very much have this idea of, you know, queer women look a certain way. Um, and that was just sort of the nail in the coffin for them. Um, and it was, it, it started off a little bit longer and then just progressively over the years, it's been what, six years now. Um, like my hair has just been getting shorter and initially up, up until maybe like a year ago, my mom would always get on me. Like every time I would cut my hair a little bit shorter, she'd be like, what are you doing? You look like a man. Why do you want to do this? Oh my God, doing a whole thing. And it, like, it's kind of brush her off and brush her off, brush her off. Now it's just, I mean, she's just at a point where <laughs> there's nothing to say at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, that was really, I feel like when I first cut it that first time, that was really the turning point of like, this is happening. You need to face it. I'm, you know, I'm a masculine presenting woman. I don't know how you want me to handle that, but we're going to keep it moving. And they've been all right so far. But yeah, that was, that was, that's funny. I don't, I always forget I have that poem just because like, I think part of me not feels guilty, but there's a part of me that knows how much my hair, like it, I, I shit you not, my hair is literally in a, an aluminum tin that my mom has oh, in wow. a drawer. Like it's, it's, in, it's a little bit insane. Um, but like there was this connection to my grandmother and because my father wasn't documented, like there was, he, he couldn't go to Portugal for 18 years. Mm -hmm. So there was this like tether that kept him with his mom. Um, and I think like, you know, little by little, he kind of just drifted away, which is really kind of sad. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I'm curious, like, having parents who are immigrants and I know you also have a poem about like them um, kind of touches upon them feeling their outsider-ness. Did you ever feel a sense of obligation to not rock the boat, to not do anything else, to be more of an outsider or make them, you know, uh, disappoint them or put anything else on them? That would be yeah. difficult. Yeah. It, so it's 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 funny. It, and and like everything from your childhood, like you start analyzing it so much differently when you're an adult. Um, so I, like I mentioned, like my parents were undocumented for a good amount of my life. And especially when I was younger, it was all about, you know, staying under the radar, not getting in trouble, staying under the limelight. Like don't 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 make yourself known. Um, so once they became documented, there wasn't this freedom, but it was like, okay, there's a box that's checked off here now. Um, and it kind of coincided with when I started recognizing my sexuality for what mm-hmm. it was. And I remember when it first sort of occurred to me, I was like, okay, I could never tell my parents. I could never tell anyone because this just isn't something that they would be okay with. And it's not that my parents were necessarily ho- Maybe they were, but I just never paid attention to it. But there was never any kind of gay bashing right, or, like or any kind of like joke. Yeah, yeah, not that I can remember. And again, maybe we remember things very differently, um, just maybe selectively. But I, I don't think that was something that, that stuck. So I just knew that it was something that my parents wouldn't want. For whatever reason, I, I that was sort of in my head. Um, so when my parents found out about it, 
it was literally like two weeks of just a back and forth of like, what does this mean? What are you talking about? No, you're not. No, you're not. Mm. You're not seeing things clearly. No, you're not. Um, so I think it was this like, oh, it's happening to me. Right. And, and we had we had known gay people around the area. And my mom's obviously like her hairdresser was a super, you know, flamboyantly gay Colombian man who I, we grew up with him like we knew him. We knew his partner. And, you know, it, it, I think it was just that realization of, oh, this is happening in my house, which mm-hmm. I think is really what happens to a lot of families. It's always OK until it happens in your house, because then you now you're left the trying to figure this out yeah um so like I got to a point where I was just like I can't do this it it was like three years in and I was exhausted of having to constantly just like not say certain things I think there was a part of my parents who acknowledged that it was happening like if I would get home late and I wouldn't bring home any boys and Mm -hmm. it was this whole thing that no one talked about um but they kind of just dug it somewhere deep inside of them until you know there was one my like first real girlfriend my cousin was getting married at the time and he had invited her and my mom was like don't you dare I know you're dating someone how could you be so disrespectful like this was this was three years later and I was like all right I I'm I'm too old for this like we've done this for the last three years this has been going on for way too long and I think it was after that point that having that argument again just kind of like you know this is happening it's solidified that this wasn't going away and I think after then it was just kind of like you know I I I gave myself I think the permission to just say I know my parents love me I, I didn't doubt that at any point I know my parents love me I know they would never treat me poorly I know they would never you know kick me out and I was very fortunate for that um but like I also knew that if I continue to be quiet and keep all this inside of me I I was I was gonna go insane um and now like my parents are very only recently did I really hear my mom acknowledge that I was gay like she said the word Mm. and I was like what and she kind of just tossed it into conversation I didn't know if I should respond or not but I just kind of sat there waiting and again it went back to the hair because she was talking about how her one of her boss's daughters like came out as gay and and she literally she was washing the dishes and I was sitting at her kitchen table and she was like oh you know so and so's daughter is like you she's a gay and I was like what (laughs) and I kind of like looked at her and she was like yeah but she didn't cut her hair so I don't know why you have to cut your hair and I was like oh my god this woman just acknowledged it um but that was like the and we're talking nine years later so this was like the first time that it it really became a thing and I'm I mean my parents are very vocal about a lot of the issues that they cared about and that's what reinforced me being okay with talking so bluntly about everything that bothers me um and everything that's wrong right now so I, I think having them forced into it and there's a lot of apprehensions that they have and there's a lot of things that we're working on but my parents have been very, 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 very kind. Um, and they've grown a lot. And even now, like I recently got engaged to my partner. So like that, that was this moment where, thank you. Thank you. (laughs) But like, thank you. But I will say, and, and, and it sucks because it was sort of this, this moment, right. Where, you know, we're ecstatic. We're so happy it's happening. And our first thoughts were like, 
you know, how are we going to tell our parents? Yeah. What is this going to be like? And, and I, 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 I had no idea. Like we can sort of play out. We sort of knew how, how my partner's parents were going to handle it. But when it came to my parents, I was like, this can go one of two ways. It can either go completely haywire or they can be pretty accepting of it. And they were so kind mm. and they were just very welcoming and they gave us a hug and they, you know, so they said congratulations and you can tell they were sort of, I think relieved in a way to just like, okay, maybe she's not living the the life we thought she would, but you know, she's, she's getting married. She has someone that she loves. She has this little family. She's safe. She's, you know, she's taken mm. care of. We're okay. We sort we did our job. Um, which was nice to see the sort of growth there. Definitely kind of surreal, but super nice. I'm really happy that, that that's how it went. And I feel like you have so much strength because it just takes a lot to be yourself and, and to be yourself, even when you know people closest to you that you love the most might not be okay with that and like to have to to have to carry that weight and that sadness and all of that for so long is um heartbreaking that that's the way that things are but I'm I'm glad that there was happiness in that moment with your parents and um I'm thinking about how like that that act of cutting your hair is you know, you saying this body is mine. My sexuality is mine. My life is mine. And I think for so many people, regardless of their orientation, we don't really necessarily feel like we belong to ourselves. Like we can be so fragmented. I mean, I think especially for women because of the way that our bodies are objectified and the way that we're conditioned. And it's like so often the, the idea, the, the conversation around like a woman's choice is framed around the topic of abortion, but it's like so much more than that. It's a woman's everything. It's everything. And, and it's been a really long journey for me too. And like, Mm -hmm. I, you know, I'm 28 now. I got a massage for the first time like a couple months ago. So I was 27. And I I would have never gone before because the idea of like being naked in front of someone Mm -hmm. or almost naked. I mean, you know, I was under a sheet, but like, like it felt like wrong. Like somehow that's wrong. That's bad. I'm not supposed, even though like not intellectually, right. But like, like intellectually, I could think of sex positive things or whatever. Right, right. But in my bones, like it's taken me 28 years to feel like my body belongs to me. To Absolutely. start to feel like that. Yeah. You know? I don't think we ever really, I mean, it takes a lot of, of active work to undo all of, of the complete bullshit that we've been ingrained the patriarchy with. like and misogyny oh and <laughs> my god it's like it's Homophobia. and it's it's really rooted it's the root of everything 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 every time you think you're okay or at least personally like I feel like every time I, I think I'm okay with my body there's always this little piece of me that's like no you need to change that yeah. that's not good enough yeah um and it's it's so hard like I always joke with my partner uh, like so when I was in high school I was a, a super chunky kid I was always a big kid um 
but I lost like, you know, 45 pounds and, and all throughout high school, I made that my mission, you know, Mm. was to keep that weight down. And I've always had a terrible relationship with, with food and my weight. And the older I get, the more I'm just like, I'm so tired of having to think about this stuff of having to sit here and like, you know, Oh, I enjoyed, you know, lunch today. Maybe I need to cut back on dinner where I'm like, no, I I want to eat. Like it's, I'm supposed to eat and, and I don't want to have to live up to these standards. I don't want to have to surrender my body to what everyone else thinks it should look like. Like I'm, I'm, I'm back. I, I, had like a a thyroid surgery last year so I've gained a good amount of weight and and there's so much of me that's trying to fight it that's Mm -hmm. trying to say no I need to get back on a diet I need to you know I need to start eating right I need to go to the gym but the other part of me is like you're you're I'm healthy I'm 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 healthy I'm okay I'm happy like I'm, I'm in a loving partnership with somebody who validates my body who loves my body like what more am I looking for and we're always we're conditioned to always look for more validation somewhere yes. that's not internal. And it's 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 terrible and it's it's exhausting and it's frustrating and it's annoying and I'm over it. But I, I, there's still this little brain. There's still yes, this little piece. I completely like it's so funny because in I was writing up some notes before our conversation and like just reflecting on some things and it, like sex and food. Like those, yeah. those relationships are so interconnected <laughs> and like the way yeah. that you approach them and the way and your body and like it's all so connected. And I feel like like it took me again, like 28 years to realize like, oh, I kind of think that I deserve to suffer or that I don't just deserve to feel good to yeah. enjoy food without suffering for it or we punish um, ourselves for just like yeah. enjoying small things yeah. like you're not and it's funny because i think part of that and it, uh marina and i were actually on we we went to brunch with dr grisella costa and vincent toro we went ah, on she, sunday grisella is my most recent yes. podcast guest <laughs> yeah so we were actually talking about like the things that that bring us joy and just accepting that in in all of the crap that's been going on like we're allowed to experience just unfiltered joy and not feel guilty for it like just be completely okay with with all like putting that part of us aside that says you know I need to be productive I need to do this I need to and just saying right now I want to do this yeah and I'm allowed to do this yep. and I you know I can take a half hour and do this and not feel like I've just completely lost control of everything. Yep. And it's really hard. I think, I think part of it is, is, is just like American capitalist society. I was is, just, is, yeah. yeah. It's, it, you know, it, it forces you to always feel like you're supposed to be doing yeah. something. Always, and to always, always feel bad and like nothing is enough and yes. you're not enough ever. And you have to be doing something, buying something, producing yes. something. And I think also, like, it kind of comes back to, like, in the beginning when we were talking about um, thinking that there's, like, one way to have sex or one, like, certain things are normal and there's, like, a certain goal. And I think about, too, like, so many women, like, I I can't really speak to men's experience with this type of thing because I just don't know it. But so many women, I feel like it's this unspoken thing, like... 
especially like how many women have sexual trauma? I mean, yeah, a lot. I mean, like (laughs) statistically alone, and that's just the people who speak up about it. And that's just the the people who I can recognize and identify that they have sexual trauma. And that doesn't just live in your head and your heart. That lives in your body, too. Absolutely. And I don't want to I don't want to be negative about it. I'm not just like, oh, sex is pain for women. Like I but but a nuanced a nuanced discussion has to acknowledge that women can experience, especially after trauma, pain and infections and, you know, like all sorts of physical things that Mm -hmm. mean like it's not going to look like a movie. Absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) Or whatever. And in terms of always feeling not enough, it's like understanding that that's okay. And like, you're not Mm -hmm. less of a person and you're not broken. Like I know that I, I've struggled with feeling like less of a person or feeling somehow broken or defective because of, because of that pain. And how sad is that? That absolutely. And it's, it's, it's funny because in you talking about that, like it reminds me of, of being in high school and, you know, now we can acknowledge how, how just fundamentally catcalling is just straight up harassment. But when, you know, when you're young, like it's, if you don't get catcalled, it's like, oh, you know, if you're walking with a group right. of your best girlfriends right. and, you know, everybody gets hit on, but you, yep. you're, you know, there's a part of you who's like seeking out that totally. abuse, who's wanting that kind of treatment. Totally. And you can acknowledge like, oh, this is complete bullshit. I, I, I shouldn't want this, but there's always a part of you that wants that validation in whatever form that it comes, no matter how abusive, no matter how, yep. you know, terrible and patriarchal it really is it's 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 something that we look for and it's like we 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 like i don't know we 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 bask in this trauma we we live in this trauma just constantly happening and again it takes i think the the underlying issue with all of this is that it takes so much work and and self-actualization and really like sitting with every really vulnerable part of you and and having this this moment where you're just like I don't have to do these things. Yeah. And then I don't have to care about what happens when I don't do these things. Yeah. And that takes a lot. Yeah. And it's terrifying because you don't know what's going to be on the other end of that. Exactly. Yes, it's like you have to it takes a level of trust that you're not just going to end up alone. Yeah. <laughs> and unlovable. Yeah. And that you're, you're worth, if you do end up alone, that you're worth being alone. Like if, if right. you have stuck to your guns and it's something that you truly believed in, then it was worth you being alone. Right. And that it's not on you. Like that takes so, I can, I can, and it's funny because like as a mental health professional, and it, we've always talked about this, even when I was in the counseling program at Kenyon University, like we always talked about how, you know, counselors, if anything, need the most therapy. Because yeah. we, we sit here and, and, and we offer up all of this information and offer up, you know, all of this, um, I don't want to say guidance because that's like the number one taboo word with therapy. But like you sort of offer up these these avenues to, to clients and to students and, and you're able to step back and acknowledge them and say this, you know, this is what, what would benefit you right now. But you try doing that to yourself and it's mm-hmm. like, nope, sorry, I have no idea how to do that. Yeah. It's very straight. I have no idea where to even start with my own traumas and with my own vulnerabilities and with my own bias. Nope. I'm sorry. Because so much of that therapeutic 
relationship or the counseling relationship is literally just having someone look at like looking at someone looking at you if it's if it's a good one with with a form of love you know not a predatory form of love that's that's another thing but just compassion acceptance and not just like tolerating matters yeah but like being Like, like you're like seeing the goodness in you and reflecting it back to you Absolutely. Ideally, we get to a place where we learn to do that for ourselves too. But I think it's really important to have other, another person or other people doing that. Yeah. And even pointing out like, because I think inherently we, we're, we're, we can acknowledge where our detriments lie. I think, you know, I'm, I'm very good at, at recognizing, you know, my my self-esteem issues and this and this and all the things that that I think I can work on but I think when you're sitting with someone who doesn't know everything and is just hearing what you're saying they can point out where you may not have noticed you mentioned you know how you know you're self-centered or how you know you have narcissistic tendencies I think one of the the most my favorite techniques it's kind of just like you know Socratic questioning, you know, where you just said this, hearing, you know, listening for those contradictions of you said this before, but now you're saying this, where does that come from? Based on only what you're saying, and that's not obviously not omitting what everyone else, all the other factors in your life that play into what you're saying, but based on just the information you're choosing to give me, I can sort of establish a clear idea of of how you feel about yourself of how you feel about others, about how, you know, of how you feel about your relationship to these people around you and, and what role you play in them um, without asking those direct questions. And I, I don't know. I think we're allowed to just like word vomit. Yeah. And I think about how as a counselor, like you're holding space for people and you're ge- you're letting them, le- you know, air stuff out. Like I think of that, that cliche of being in a closet, you know, in the closet it's dark it's cramped you can't breathe very well in there you know it's and as little kids we're afraid of the monster coming out of the closet right and like as adults we can still have parts of ourselves in the closet that can't breathe and we're afraid of them and absolutely I feel like a good therapist or counselor is there to kind of like crack the door open and be like Let's let's air this out a little bit. Let's, sh- let's yeah, bring definitely. the light in a little bit. Let's look at it. No, it's not a monster. It's just that like sweater. Yes, absolutely. I think a big misconception is that you go to a therapist to fix your problems. No, you're not fixing things, right? You're 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 trying to recognize where these things are coming from and working at dealing with them. Especially with traumas, there's no fixing traumas. Yeah. There's only you know working your way around navigating them for the rest of your life. And you have, you know, you, you establish coping, coping mechanisms and, and figure out ways to le- lead a healthy life and a life where that trauma isn't consuming you in every decision you make. And and I think, like, it is important to feel like the person likes you. Mm-hmm. And I think even if they seem like a, like a competent therapist or a competent counselor or whatever, like, if you kind of feel like... I don't think we quite connect or like, I, I don't feel like they like me. Like that's a good enough reason to try someone else yeah. because I think like it is important to feel that from, I mean, different people maybe have different feelings about it, but at least for me, I, I feel like it's important to feel like 
this person likes me and they, and they care about me, you know? <laughs> right. Because I mean, realistically, if you're just with somebody, because maybe your insurance, your insurance covers most of them. Like if you're, if the, in the back of your head, you think, oh, this person doesn't really like me. Like that's going to consume, yeah. you know, the next 12 weeks yeah. of you meeting with this person. You're not going to really do the work. You're going to be too caught up in like, oh, did I just say something stupid? Oh, you know, they're going to think I'm, I'm stupid or they're going to think I'm lame or they're going to yeah. think I'm this or like those kinds of things will completely impede the actual therapeutic process. Yeah. And I agree. And, and sometimes it's even about just, you know, counseling technique. What techniques do mm-hmm. these, you know, I personally, I know that mindfulness wouldn't be something that would work for me. It doesn't work. I can acknowledge that. And I, 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 I you know, you seek out the things that work for you. And that comes with trial and error. That comes with research. That comes with recognizing what's worked for you on smaller levels in the past. Um, and, and again, I think people don't want to do the work because it makes them uncomfortable. Because, you know, all of this stuff might come up. And then what? Right? And then you're left, because you might have an awesome session where, you know, you feel like things are actually going where they want to go. And then you're left to deal with them on your own. And then what? Yeah. Like when you're when you're laying in bed at, at yeah. 11 o'clock at night and you're sitting there thinking about how you said maybe this thing and, and the counselor thinks this now of you. It's like th- those aren't the things you should be worrying about. You should be worrying about doing the work and, and making sure that it's work that is beneficial to you. And that's hard. That is the hardest part is you is recognizing that the work is all you. It's no one else that can do it for you. And I love that you acknowledged like that not everything is going to work for everyone. Again, you're you're acknowledging that you know yourself, you can trust yourself. And like I, I, I really like that you used the example of mindfulness because I'm totally the type of person who like I try to like I will try to shove my round my square peg into a round <laughs> hole until right. you know like yeah. until I'm totally exhausted you know and yeah broken down and because again when you think that there's like a certain way that you're supposed to be a certain thing that you're supposed to fit into the person that you end up hurting is yourself like absolutely and that goes for your your mental health and your sexual health and your physical health everything and um and there are certain like trends and buzzwords and things that ever people will tout as like, no, this is the thing. This is the thing you're supposed Absolutely. to do. This is the thing you're you're supposed to be. This is the way you're supposed to do it. And man, I don't know, but my twenties have really been like first half and maybe a little bit more have been about really trying to shove that square peg into the round hole. <laughs> and yeah getting kind of broken down by that and then being like, huh, I guess I should try finding out what I actually want and what actually works for me and what my body is actually trying to tell me. <laughs> and it's funny because uh, my partner and I actually had a conversation about this and we were talking about this on Sunday as well about how, you know, because my job is what it is and I sit here and listen to, you know, students with issues and, and students who come in and they vocalize, you know, that they're in foster care, or that their parents are addicts or this or that. Um, you know, that's my day. And then I get home and it's just like the flooding of terrible news that's Mm. happening right now. It's just like constant, constant, constant. And for a while, like when, when the, uh, Alabama abortion ban first happened, like 
I didn't want to talk. I didn't want to do anything. I didn't want to process. I didn't want to acknowledge. Like, I just didn't want to, I didn't want to engage. And like, my partner was kind of like, you're not talking to me. What's going on? Like, you're quiet. And, and I didn't know how to, how to explain. Like, I don't want to do this. Like, I, I need to take a break. I just need to, I need to not be a part of, of this right now. And going back to what you were saying, like, we fight so hard to do the work of claiming our own bodies. But, you know, it's something so simple can strip us in, in, in a matter of seconds. And recognizing that I think was just overwhelming. And I, I, I didn't want to, I didn't want to engage with any of it. I didn't want to acknowledge that it happened. I just wanted to sit and go on about my day and almost like be just very in myself, mm-hmm. which is, is normal to me. And uh, my partner is like, she, she's very much open about everything and she wants to talk about it and she wants to hash it out and she wants to talk about how terrible everything is. And, but like, and we usually have those conversations, but I, I just, I couldn't, I knew for my, for my sanity, I couldn't entertain that conversation. I couldn't read about it. I didn't like, there were, I I went like two days without being on social media. I just, I didn't want to, I couldn't say anything. I think that was sort of the moment where I recognized it was okay to not engage and it doesn't make me any more, any less of an activist or, mm. you know, it doesn't make me any less useful in the resistance of all of this. Like, I, I'm allowed to take that break. I actually just did an episode recently about um, the Lord of the Rings, like reading the Lord of the Rings <laughs> for the first time and some of the key, like, takeaway bits of wisdom I got from the first book. And one, one was, like, you have to rest and feast when you can because it's a hard long journey and like those hobbits when they're on the road if they get (laughs) if someone offers them a bed and a good meal like they take take it it. yeah because it's a long journey and there's gonna be long stretches where you can't do it but like you need that you need nourishment and I, I think every spiritual tradition has you know rest baked into it has a it. sabbath of sorts yeah yeah mm-hmm. yeah and and, and our, our bodies are not meant to take in this amount of trauma there's this is just so much all the time i remember people watching the kavanaugh hearing at work and like i walked into the room and they're watching it and i started to have like a physiological reaction to yeah i and i had to leave and it was right. like you never know and i you know i think about like people of color in this country and Uh, You know, there are all sorts of people who have suffered horrific trauma. Um, And I think about, like, you also just never know when you're, when you're, when someone really wants to talk about some certain news story or is blasting the news or whatever, like, you don't know how that's landing on the people around you necessarily. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, And it's hard because, like, as much as I want to take that step back, there's also always a part of me that's like... Am I enabling all of this by taking that step back? And I obviously, again, rationally, I can sit here and I can say I deserve this break. But of course, everyone wants to take a step back. But, you know, if I do, then what? Right. How do I get to tell this story 10, 15 years from now? There's a part in all of us, I think, that doesn't want to have to deal with this. Yeah, I very much struggle with it, too. And like in this year, I've had a big I had a big resurgence of 
anxiety and panic attacks and physiologically like I didn't even realize how bad it had gotten until I went to a doctor checkup and they were like your blood pressure is really high like wow are you (laughs) nervous and I was like I'm anxious all the time (laughs) all the time so (laughs) yeah um and like yeah and I kind of was like I can't like read the news every day and I do feel guilty about that like I have chosen to step back but I also have to trust that like all right I'm not going to be good to anyone if I'm you know absolutely yeah we have to know our limits yeah and, and I think the biggest thing is just not becoming paralyzed by thinking it's too small it's not enough so I'm just going to not yeah. do anything you know I think yeah, it's about definitely. people choosing to continue to do what they can trusting that that is enough right now um it has to be because it's what you can do you know and yeah. like and trusting that yeah like that it is it is going to change and maybe one day you will be in a position to do something differently, to do more, whatever. But even what you're doing in schools is is important work. And it is, yeah. like, I mean, that is part of our community, our country. Um, yeah. And, and those are the things that I think we try to remind ourselves of. Yeah. Right? That, like, we are doing things within our realm. I, I, I think I can acknowledge that I, I do make a difference, whether it's for two students or 50 students, I I make a difference every day, but it's always that what else? Right. And you know what I'm thinking about is um, I mentioned that therapist Esther Perel earlier and she, Mm -hmm. her parents are, were Holocaust survivors. They were, they, they met like on their way out of a concentration camp and they fell in love and they were both the only survivors from their families. And So she, you know, has been really interested in trauma and Yeah. But she does couples therapy and she was she says, you know, there are people who survive and there are people who keep living. And mm. that that idea of the erotic in life is is about your life force and like are you connected to your creativity, to your um to taking risks, to being playful, to laughing, like all of those things. And all of those things are, you know, make up our sexuality too. Absolutely. Um, So I'm curious for you, what connects you to that sense of eroticism in your life? Like where do you derive (sighs) a sense of being connected to your life force? Oof. I know that's a big question, like that an is hour a big and a half question. in at 1045 <laughs> at night, so take your time, but... No, that is a big question. Um, it's funny, like, the, the my immediate thought is, like, music and mm-hmm. dancing. Yeah. Like, I feel like there's, there's something that happens physically, viscerally, when there's music on yeah. that just puts me in this very different place, in a very different mood. Um that I can't really explain, but it taps into something that just makes me feel very, I guess, sexy. Um, and it could be any music, but it, 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 it like reignites this feeling of like self-worth mm. and, and just like, I think it acknowledges that there is this very primal part of me that can just dance and and not give a shit mm. and 
and just feel it and go with it and keep it going um, until eventually the music stops. Mm. Um, I think that very much taps into and I and the other part of it and it, I think it's, it's always been something that I think has been a form of my erotic is just having having a meaningful conversation with someone mm-hmm. who can understand it who can have who can look at you and 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 maybe not understand exactly what you're saying but who can who can validate it um one of the biggest reasons that I I fell in love with my partner was because you know we would have conversations on end and and we would just sit and talk and talk and talk and talk about whatever um and you know I play devil's advocate and and pick each other's brains and we even do it now where sometimes you know we'll be thinking about certain things and you know, I'll turn to her and I'll be like, all right, I'm thinking this. Is that terrible? Is that something that maybe I shouldn't? And and that, going back to what you said before, like, that is a form of intimacy for me. It's not sexual, but it means just as much. It means it's just as deep. It's just as powerful. Having those kinds of conversations with somebody who who isn't necessarily looking for something. They're just, they're just here to, to hear you out. Um I feel like is one of the most powerful things between any two people in my case, but whoever, how many people, however many people want to be involved. Um, yeah, those are the two. Cause I, I feel like I can definitely sit here and analyze that question in this much bigger <laughs> profound no, way, are, but those are probably the two that stick out. Those the most. are profound. Those are like, that's really beautiful. And like doing the podcast for me has helped connect me to that. For that reason, like getting to have conversations like this that I would never have if I didn't start this podcast. Not never have, but with certain people, like it probably just wouldn't happen because you don't typically say like, can we put on the calendar a date when we are going to sit down and Skype and, you know, with with people that you don't, that you wouldn't necessarily have that with. And, um, and I think for music music for me too has been is is definitely one for me as well and something with dancing that I've been thinking a lot about is that when I was younger like this actually came up with Griselle when I talked to her Mm -hmm. because she was talking about really finding her center like on the dance floor in clubs in Chicago that's what we were talking about on Sunday that's I think that's why music came up so yeah and but I said to her you know like what's funny is like when I was 11 and I started going to middle school dances like I was so aware of the male gaze and it was so Hmm. overtly sexualized because like the music they were playing was like you know like get low and stuff right we're 11 (laughs) years old singing to the windows to the walls till the sweat drips down my balls you know absolutely it's a classic yeah um 11 (laughs) years old I think about that now and but you know already people were like grinding and it was very yeah I don't know. I was just very aware of how does this look to the guys? Um, and is this pleasing? And is this like mm. attractive? Yeah. And um, so like coming to a place of kind of like reclaiming dance you know, awesome. as something no, that doesn't yes. have to be that isn't isn't for any gaze. Um, yes. Yeah. And so, I, okay, I'm curious, what do you have like a song or two that you've been listening to a lot recently that Ooh. you would recommend? Oh, recently. Um, oh, or whenever, whatever comes to mind right now. There's so many. So I literally have like, I'm yeah. always listening to music. Yeah. Okay. It's called Tyrant and it's by uh, 
Kylie Uchis? Kylie Uchis? I'm butchering that. I can definitely at some point send it to you. Okay. Um, <laughs> Sounds good. But it's called Tyrant. And oh my god, I've been obsessed. It's kind of embarrassing. But the Get Down, it's a country rap song. It's by, uh, I, I want to say something Bobby, but that's not right. Uh, Billy Ray Cyrus and the other guy? Is that one? No, no. That's, that's, that's Old, uh, Town, Old Road. Town Road. Never mind. There is another one. <laughs> it's like, this, it's, 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 it's country hip hop, which I think is, is very awesome mixed to begin with. Blanco Brown. Oh my God. That's like my feel good song. All right. I got to look at it. And it's really corny. There's a whole dance to it, but it's just like very, and I don't like country at all. That's not my kind of thing. Um, but this but works. there's just something very like anything with it that's like a dance craze. My partner makes fun of me all the time. Anything that's a dance craze, I'm there. Like, <laughs> I'm here to learn the moves. Um, when it comes on at a party, I'm there. I will teach you it. Yeah, there's so many other songs that I, it's it's actually really terrible of me that I'm not remembering. And I'm going to be so mad at myself when I'm laying in bed. I'm going to have one of those existential <laughs> moments where I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> Those are good. Yeah, no, I put you, two. I mean, I put you on the spot, so. You did. I, I wasn't expecting that one. I've been kind of like, sometimes in the morning, I'll just kind of dance around. Um, oh, yes. And Too Much by Carly Rae Jepsen oh. is on my list right now. I think I really like, I really like that one a lot. And pretty much anything by Lizzo right now. Oh, yes, absolutely. In the morning, right? Like yes. you're just, you're looking at, you get out of the shower and you just gotta listen to Lizzo, Absolutely. and the whole day will be better. It's funny because Marina, for like literally two weeks, that was all she was playing <laughs> yeah. in the house. And at first, I was like, "All right, you need to turn this shit down." Like I've I've heard it; it's great, it's catchy, it's amazing. And then she like stopped because she like obsesses over things, and then yeah, that's yeah. it. She gives it a break. And now that it's not happening twenty four seven in the house, I'm like, oh, oh, I can enjoy this yep. on my own, not <laughs> being forced to. Palette. This is nice. Yeah, <laughs> so good. Yes. Wow. How could I forget about Lizzo? Marina's gonna be not so happy with me. <laughs> it's okay. We got there. That's all. That yeah. Matters. Eventually. Um. Okay. What is something that you're learning about or growing into right now? At this point, where I am in my life, I think my biggest uh, the biggest work that I'm doing is one learning how to be in a, in a healthy partnership with someone. And two is learning how to be a mother to two children. Um, that's a lot. I, I, it is, it is a lot. <laughs> All of that is and a lot. And it's something that like, I, I think, I mean, I've been stumbling for the last few months because I recently moved in um, with Marina and the girls. So it has been just kind of an experience that I'm getting used to. Um, but I think just learning the ins and outs of, of compromise, of patience, like a motherfucker, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, of just like trying to learn that I'm not always right. Um, I like how you said trying, that, <laughs> like through trying, clenched teeth. <laughs> trying, trying to just like acknowledge that even though the, I, I, we share this space, like, you know, it has to be something that is communal. It has to be something that everybody has a part in. Um, it's, it's definitely not easy for me as just someone who's, who's a natural introvert and just needs their time away from things. Like I, I sort of went from having 
my I lived with my parents up until I moved in and my I mean I got home sort of whenever I wanted I didn't really see my parents so it was kind of like an in and out situation where I was sort of always alone to now having three people who were like always around um and that for me is something that I'm trying to navigate a little bit better every day um but I'm I'm very grateful for having a space where I can just have like a little authentic little family of mine and something that like you know, I work at every day and I try to be better for, um, and I'm, I'm very insanely grateful for my partner and for like the patience that she has. And, and I think she's, she's definitely better at, at growth than I am. I think I, again, counselors are the worst, but I think, you know, I'm, I'm sort of at a point where I'm trying to grow with three other people. That's not always easy. I'm learning that. Wow. It's funny. I feel like I kind of had a kind of an opposite experience where I moved out of my parents' house in October and I have, I'm one of five kids. My sister's oh. older and out of the house. But so I have, um, I had three younger siblings at home and my parents and my grandmother. So, and, and I was kind of in and out too, but constantly surrounded by people. And I am an introvert. Um, mm-hmm. So I kept just being like, I just want to be, I just need time to myself. I just need time to myself. And then I moved into an apartment and I'm alone a lot more. Yeah. And it's yeah. like, I'm alone. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, my boyfriend is in Montana. He was in Montana for six months last year and he'll be there for six months again this year. Um, forest firefighting. So uh, ah, we have a lot. That's an adjustment. Him. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm, like, alone a lot more in a much more, like, fundamental way. And uh, I always thought, like, I just want to be alone. But then when you're, like, I mean, I have a I have a roommate, but, like, mm-hmm. um, it's adult life, you know? Like, I live right. near my job, not necessarily near. My family's, like, an hour away. Most of my friends are at least a half hour away. So if she's gone for the weekend and, you know... I, it's like I want that alone time, but then I mm-hmm. also sometimes get it and I'm like, I don't even know what to do with it because I'm not in, I, you know, I'm, I'm learning about how to get in touch with what I want. Um, yes. And there's nothing to make you realize how much you don't know what you want, like a weekend <laughs> without any plans with, yeah. <laughs> or anybody yeah. around. Yeah. And I've had no, to get better I about get reaching out to people and making plans and, you know, like seeking, really being proactive about socializing too so that those alone moments do feel good and like you know like a good solitude and not like uh despair (laughs) oh that props yeah props because that that takes a lot yeah it's it's it it is an adjustment in a way that I thought I was ready for or at least I thought that would be much simpler and it's like every day there's there's something else that I that I have to work on I don't know if I'm doing it so well, but I like to think I am. Well, thank you. I'm so immensely grateful for your time and for this conversation. This was was wonderful. This was so great. Likewise, thank you for taking the time and and making all of this happen with everyone, not even just with me. Your podcasts are awesome. It's it's just um, a pure delight for me. Yeah. (laughs) And look, and you're doing the work, which is (laughs) awesome. You're doing the work by doing something you love, which is great. Trying, yeah.
Thank you so much for listening to the Perennials Podcast. I'm Victoria Russell. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with a friend. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or leave a review on iTunes. It really helps other people to find the show. You can follow along on Instagram at Perennials Podcast and feel free to send me an email at perennialspodcast at gmail.com. The song you're hearing now is I Orbit a Moon by Paul Finn.